Would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. This week I am preaching. That's obvious by now. Um, But next week we have a great privilege of having Chris Helding preach here. Many of you will remember Chris Helding was our first pastoral resident. Others of you who are newer to the church, you'll have the opportunity to meet them. We are hosting our very first um, pastoral uh, resident reunion. And so Chris and Morgan will be here along with their children. Um, Also, uh, Dirk and Katie Jaspers, they will be here from South Dakota. Dominic and Kirsty are already living in Wichita. As you know, they'll not be here on Sunday, but they'll be a part of that reunion. And I'm really looking forward to having Chris in this pulpit in anticipation of his sermon on Romans 8 verses 18 to 30. I went ahead and listened to his sermon on my passage this morning, and it made me excited for what is to come. But it did more than that. I liked his introduction so much that I pitched mine and I stole his and decided to use it this morning. So here it is. He began with a quote from William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. Maybe you're familiar with it. If not, I think the quote stands on its own. This is what Wallace says as he faces death. Every man dies. Not every man really lives. You think that that's true? Every man dies. Not every man really lives. Now, there's a sense in which every person who is breathing is living, but just because you have breath in your lungs, just because you have blood in your veins, does that mean that you're really living, living the life that you were meant to live, living a life of purpose, living a life that has meaning and value? Everybody agrees that just because you are breathing, living, does not mean that you are really living. But what constitutes real living, that's where people disagree and give different answers. Some would say that really living, like William Wallace, is fighting for the right cause. Others may say, Really living is finding your soulmate, being in good relationships with people, and those things would be good. Others may say that really living is success in your career, academic or professional. It's achieving the goals that you have set before you. That's what really living is. Some of those things may be good things, but Paul And Romans 8 this morning would say that that is not really living. Last week, Paul described a life lived in the flesh. Living in the flesh is living controlled by our sinful desires and our sinful nature. And as Paul talked about this life, it's important to know that he was not talking about a frivolous life. 
or even a reckless life given over to the commonly quoted sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Paul was talking about a life that was pursuing very good things, a life pursuing God, seeking to follow His law. But even that life left him frustrated and highly discouraged. He wasn't really living because in the flesh, he couldn't do it. He couldn't keep God's law. He couldn't please God. He wasn't really living, even though he was trying to live a good life. As Jordan Green said at the beginning of his sermon last week, Romans 7 is one of the more discouraging chapters in all of the Bible. Even a person who wants to live a good life in the flesh, it can't be done. But Romans 8 is one of the most encouraging chapters in all of the Bible. In Romans 8, Paul gives us the key to really living. He tells us how we can live a life that we were meant to live, a life with purpose, a life that is pleasing to God. And here's the key. This is the key ingredient. It's the only ingredient, actually, that enables you to really live, and that is the Holy Spirit. As we read this passage, you will notice Repeated, the words life, live, walk, living, all dealing with this notion of life, repeated. And you will see this massive cluster of the words spirit, Holy Spirit, which up until now in Romans, there has been only a few references to, but now it's all over the page. And this repetition of the word life and spirit is meant to draw out the main point and purpose of this passage. Truly living is living in the Spirit. So with those things in mind, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Brace yourself for the good news. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot 
please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What a word. Sometimes you feel like, uh, how can, how can a preacher give justice to a passage like this? Quite possibly, this chapter, one of the most powerful chapters in all of the Bible. I am not worthy, but I pray that I can show you what is here so that you can marvel at the grace of God. My message is simple. It is this. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. The only way to truly live is to have life in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit. In this passage, it shows us four ways that the Spirit gives life. There's really no commands here. This is showing us what God has done in giving us the Spirit. Four ways that the Spirit gives us life. These become a foundation then for when we get to chapter 12 of the things that we are called to do as Christians. I pray that they are encouraging to you. First, the Spirit frees you from condemnation. Many of you are well acquainted with condemnation. Maybe self-condemnation. You may have an inner critic that tells you all the time that you've not done it well enough. Maybe you have a nagging sense of guilt from something in your past that you feel that will never, never be gone, ever present in your mind. 
Maybe it's not self-condemnation. Maybe it's condemnation that you feel from others, judgment. Maybe even in the church, you feel that judgment. Maybe you were raised in a home where it seemed as though nothing you ever did was good enough to please your parents. And so you know condemnation well. This passage is talking about a very objective condemnation. Not simply a subjective feeling of condemnation. This passage in its broader context is talking about the reality that everybody who is not in Christ, everybody in our sin stand guilty before a righteous God. All who are in Adam are condemned. The wages of sin is death. In our sin, we are condemned now. And will face the eternal judgment of God. Condemnation is real. And living under condemnation is like living under a dark cloud. It's not truly living. Let me say it this way. If you are living under condemnation, you can't truly live. But in verse 1, the clouds break. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And only for those who have placed their trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. They are in Christ. And all who are in Christ are no longer condemned. They have been declared righteous. They have been declared not guilty. They are justified. There is now presently no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's objectively gone. Do you believe this? Unless you believe this, you can't truly live. You can't truly live under the weight of thinking that God is against you or under the weight of the reality that God is against you. The only way to truly live is to come to believe truly that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how is it possible that those who are in Christ Jesus are no longer under the condemnation of God. We are told in verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. But how is that possible? We have to keep reading to see how that is possible. God has done what the law, weakened by the sinful flesh, could not do. God has sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And in doing so, He has condemned sin in the flesh. It's a complicated sentence. But a simple yet profound truth. God has done something. God has taken action. He sent His only Son. And His Son 
took on flesh. He who was fully God became fully man, like us in every way except for in one way. He was without sin. And then he went to the cross and paid the penalty for the sins of all who would believe in him. So he lived the life that we have failed to live. And not only that, he then died in our place the death that we deserved to die. The reason that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is because he took the condemnation in our place, as the hymn said, condemned he stood, sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Christ took the condemnation that we deserve. That is why, objectively, there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you want to truly live? You have to come to believe that that is true if you are in Christ. So how do we truly live? What did I say at the beginning? We live through the Spirit. Look at what verse 2 says again. The life of the, the, the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Why does Paul say it that way? Why does Paul say that the Spirit sets us free if all that I just said was true? That it is Christ who was condemned in our place. Why doesn't Paul say Christ sets us free? Well, both are true. Christ sets us free and the Spirit sets us free. But this is how it works. You see, Christ accomplished salvation for us at the cross. But the Spirit applies salvation to us. Christ accomplishes it objectively. The Spirit applies it to our life. It is through the Spirit that we are united with Christ so that all that Christ is and all that Christ has done are now ours. We are in Him and our union with Christ is how we receive all of the blessings of Christ. And that union with Christ is through the Spirit. That's why Paul says the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death or the power of sin and death. This is what has happened. The power of sin and death no longer have any dominion over those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from all of that through our union with Christ. We no longer have to obey the demands of sin. We no longer have to fear the threats of death. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been transferred from the realm of sin and death into the realm of life in the Spirit. Under the rulership, under the authority of Jesus, not of sin. And death. Do you really want to live a life that is pleasing to God, to serve God, to keep His commandments? Do you want to live that life? 
If you're a Christian, I hope you do. What you need to hear from this passage is that is why Jesus died for your sins so that that could be possible. That's why the Spirit applied the work of Christ to your heart so that that could be possible. As verse 4 says, it was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We are called to live a life that is pleasing to God, but in order to live this life, we have to start at point one. We have to start by believing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're looking in the mirror for your assurance, you're going to be very discouraged. Don't look to yourself. Look to Christ who has made an end to all of our sin. God gave Him as an atoning sacrifice in place of us. The condemnation of God fell on Him. There is now, therefore, no condemnation if you were in Christ. Do you believe it? You can't live if you don't believe that it is true. The Spirit has set you free. Second, the Spirit enables you to please God. We see this in verses 5 to 8. The key word in these verses is mind. The mind is not simply our brain, the thing that we use to think. Our mind encompasses our thoughts, yes, but also our will, our affections, and our desires. What Paul is doing here is drawing a contrast. He's saying those who live according to the flesh do not have the Spirit of God. They're not Christians. Their minds are set. The direction of their life, their thoughts, their feelings, their motivations, their desires, all of those things are directed to the flesh. They're controlled by the flesh. Sin is controlling them. Their minds are on those things. But what is worse To set the mind on the flesh is death. Those controlled by the flesh are dead in their sins. They can't do good. They can't please God. As verse 7 says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You may be asking yourself, Really? Is that true that a person who's not a Christian can't please God? That they can't do anything that is good? I mean, we all know people who are not Christians that seem to be doing good things. They're good parents, or at least as good as a parent can be. They're good neighbors. They're good employees. They're doing good things within our community. But at the end of the day, Paul tells us in chapter 3, no one does good, not even one. Because apart from the Spirit of God, we are all hostile to God. We are all hostile to God. That's why we can't please God in the flesh. Maybe to help make this make more sense, there's an illustration that Tim Keller uses that helped me. 
Imagine a man serving in a rebel army. So this is an army that is in active rebellion to its country. And in that army is a soldier, a good soldier. He looks after his fellow soldiers. He keeps his footlocker in perfect order. His clothes are folded. His boots are shined. He's a good soldier. He follows orders. He even acts bravely. Those are all good things, right? But all of those good things are being done in hostility to the rightful ruler. That person's position in life is an enemy to the rightful ruler. So those things that they do can surely not be pleasing to the rightful ruler. The same is true of all who are living in the flesh. No matter what so-called good deeds they do, they do not please God because they're all being done in hostility to God. But this is the point I want to make to you this morning. This is the good news of Romans chapter 8. A person who has life in the Spirit, they've been changed. They're no longer dead in their sins. They're alive. They're no longer hostile toward God. They have peace with God. Verse 6. To set the mind on the Spirit is life, not death. And peace, not death. Hostility. So those who have the Spirit of God have a new operating system. Their minds are changed. Their wills are changed. Their affections, their desires are changed. Before, they couldn't please God. It was impossible. No matter how hard they tried. But now it is possible. This is such good news, friends. A Spirit-filled Christian will still battle the flesh. They will still sin, but we can now do things that are pleasing to God, truly pleasing to God, as imperfect as they are. The Lord looks on those who are His like a father would look on a child who's learning how to walk or learning how to drive, maybe, doing so imperfectly, but still pleased with the progress that they are making. Somebody who is not Born of the Spirit cannot please God. But those who are can please God. Doesn't that encourage you that your life can be pleasing to God? And that is the only life that is worth living. So the Spirit frees you from condemnation. It's foundational, critical. But the Spirit also changes you and enables you to live a life pleasing to God. And third, The Spirit dwells within you. Everyone who's in Christ has the Spirit dwelling in them. Everyone. Verse 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But the inverse is also true. Everyone who does belong to Christ does have the Spirit living in them. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not a second step In the Christian life. Something that happens to you after your conversion. Some higher form of the Christian life. I had a woman when I was in high school ask me, Have you received the Holy Spirit? I said, Well, I'm a Christian, so I sure hope so. But the idea is that there would be some subsequent step that would really 
bless me and make me full of the Holy Spirit in, in a different way. Friends, I just want to say to you, if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You have the living God living in you. Notice the logic in verse 10. This truth is what enables us to live a life pleasing to God. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and he'll give life to your mortal bodies. Do you see the logic? In our sin, in the fall, everybody will die. Everybody will die. But those who are in Christ have the spirit of God living in them. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That spirit will one day raise you from the dead as well. Will give life to your mortal bodies. But it's not just some future blessing that is encouraging to us here. That spirit, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and who will raise all who are in Christ from the dead, that's the spirit who is alive in you. You are a dwelling place for God. You are God's house. It's not just some shabby house. You're a powerhouse. Not in your own power, but the power of the Spirit of God who dwells within you. So when Paul later in chapter, I mean in verse 13, says to put to death the misdeeds of the body, which is what we ought to be doing. It's not in our own strength that we do that. It's in the strength of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who raised Christ from the dead and raised and will raise you from the dead as well. If you have new life, you need to put the old life to death. You need to put the old life to death. Remember what Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they must take up their cross and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. If you would want to gain life, you have to lose your life. If your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut the thing off. Don't just negotiate with it. Put it to death. When it comes to the misdeeds of the body, when it comes to sin, we're not calling for a truce. We're not suing for peace. We're fighting to the death. Sin We don't want sin to have any ground in our lives. We are to fight it on the offensive. But this is the point I want to make. It's not all of that. It's to say that you do that not in your own strength. You do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you've been enabled to live a life that is pleasing to God. And that ability is a very powerful ability. It's the power of God. Fourth, the Spirit makes us children of God. So if the truth that the Spirit frees us from condemnation is foundational, it is core to living the life that we are meant to live, this truth is the highest blessing 
of all of the things that we have in Christ that have been applied to us by the Spirit. Verse 14 says, all who are led by the Spirit, which simply means that the Spirit is alive in them. They are sons of God. Verse 15 says, you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Adoption for a Roman citizen was a bit different than it is for us in America. The reasons a person would adopt in the Roman Empire are different than the reasons that we would adopt. Not completely different, but different enough that I need to let you know what Paul has in mind when he uses this metaphor of adoption. A Roman man would adopt a son only when he didn't have an heir for his estate. Maybe he didn't have children at all. Maybe he didn't have a son. Maybe he only had daughters. And so, therefore, he would adopt a son for the sake of carrying on his name and for the sake of giving over his inheritance. That was the reason for it. And the moment a person was legally adopted by a Roman citizen, a number of things happened simultaneously. For one, the debts of that person that were adopted were canceled. They were paid for in full. Second, that person, as I mentioned, was given a new name and they then become immediately heirs to all of this Roman father. But then thirdly, they were also given a new obligation to live a life that was pleasing to their adoptive father and honoring to him and to his name. The Roman conception of adoption is what lies behind Paul's use of this language. Two times we're told in verses 14 to 15 that those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. You may have noticed he doesn't say sons and daughters. This may seem sexist, but it's important that we get why he uses sons and what he's doing with it, which is really remarkable. In the Roman world, only males could inherit an estate. But Paul now has the audacity to apply that metaphor of being adopted as sons to all who believe. All Christians, male and female, are now God's heirs. They have inheritance rights as adopted sons. And not simply will they gain the inheritance of some wealthy Roman father, They will gain the inheritance of our Heavenly Father, the God of the universe. Tim Keller says, Christian women shouldn't resent being called sons any more than Christian men should resent being called part of the bride of Christ. All Christians are sons and all Christians are brides. The richness of these metaphors are to communicate the blessings that we have in Christ. 
So how does knowing that we are adopted sons of God, children of God, how does that help us to really live? Well, for one, it reminds us that we're no longer debtors. We're no longer debtors to the flesh. We are no longer debtors to sin. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we can live for God without fear of condemnation, without fear of judgment. This lack of fear gives us freedom. We're not trying to earn God's favor. We already have God's favor. And so we can serve from a place of freedom. But it's not simply that. It's not simply security that helps us to really live. It's intimacy. Through the Spirit of God, we are able to call God our Father. We are able to cry out to Him, Abba, Father. Let that sink in. Not simply the fact that we are children of God, but that those words, Abba, Father, are the very words with which Jesus addresses His Father, with which the Son of God the second person of the Trinity who has been God for all eternity. These are the words he uses to address his father. And now through the spirit, we address God with the same words. Through the spirit, we come to know the father intimately. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prayed that his disciples would come to know the father. He prayed this at the very end of the prayer that the love with which you have loved me would be in them and I in them. The Father loved the Son for all eternity. That's what the Father has always been doing. Loving the Son. Pouring out His love on the Son. And now through the Spirit, we are able to be caught up into that love, to know the love of God the Father personally as His children. This is life. This is the only way to truly live, to know the Father and His one and only Son whom He has sent. We are not simply a dwelling place for the triune God, a receptacle for God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and God has brought us into His home. He has given us a seat at the table. It is a safe place to live. Very safe. But it is also a place where relationship is rich. This is life. You need to come to know not only that you're not condemned, that you're off the hook legally. You need to come to know that you have been welcomed home. You have been brought in to the family of God. You need to know you're not condemned, but you need to know that you're loved. And behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and that's what we are if we are in Christ Jesus. 
And if we are children, then guess what? Also heirs. Also heirs. You see, we have all of these blessings in Christ now. No condemnation. The Spirit dwelling in us, empowering us to live for Him. We are children of God now, but we have to wait for some of the riches of this inheritance. We're still battling sin. We won't be then. We're still suffering and dealing with sickness and death, but all of that will be gone one day. If we are in Christ... Now, we will be raised with Him. We will be glorified with Him. You'll have to wait till next week to learn more about all of that. But for now, know that if you are in the family of God, you're not only loved, you're rich. You have so much to be thankful for now, so much to look forward to Every man dies. Not every man really lives. Are you really living? Have you placed your trust and your confidence in Jesus Christ? If not, you're dead in your sin and you will face the eternal condemnation of God. Turn to Jesus in faith today. Receive forgiveness. Receive eternal life. And if you have, live in that. Live in full confidence that there's no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. Live knowing that you are now able, not in your own ability, but through the Spirit, to live a meaningful life that is pleasing to God. Put to death the misdeeds of the body, but do it through the power of the Spirit that is working within you. And leave this place today, please, knowing that you are a child of God. You belong to Him. You can't live your life in doubt of that reality. Draw near to Him as He has drawn near to you. This is life. Eternal life. To know Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a privilege that we could call you that. Not because of anything we have done, but because of what you have done in sending your Son. Help that to sink in that we can call you Father. We pray not so much that we would live differently, although that is our goal, but that we would see ourselves differently today as we look not to ourselves, but look to your Son. May that become the ground on which we live our lives for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.